0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Today's guest is the founder of Viotis, Paddy Finn. You're very welcome to the Scaling Your Business podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Ryan. Thanks very much for having me on.
0: Yeah, you, you came with a great recommendation from a friend of mine, Devin Hughes, the founder of Buy Me. Um, I want to go back to the very beginning. I looked on your LinkedIn page, noticed that you grew up in Galway. What was your favorite part of growing up out West?
1: So I grew up in, in Banasloe, County Galway, actually. So uh, right on the Galway-Roscommon border. And, nice. uh Actually, uh, where I grew up, our our house it wasn't that it was a very big house, but it was it had been extended. It was originally in County Roscommon, and it's it was an extension mm-hmm. built into County Galway. So it was a case that I, I slept in County Roscommon and ate breakfast in County Galway, and it was really mm-hmm. kind of it was out in the countryside. So when I was young, uh, growing up in the countryside I had just, just kind of looked so much freedom. So like me and my brothers used to be into like building, you know, kind of racing buggies out of Volkswagen Beetle chassis and taking engines out of uh, old uh, what now we. Uh, would be hippie vans like you know the Volkswagen vans and that and and and, and making all of this kind of stuff and you know so we used to be able to then traipse around the fields and these and uh and even yeah, and the, you know, the bogs and that so I think kind of the freedom of of uh, of growing up in the country was was really good but I, I guess as well like my friends would have all lived quite a bit away so they would have let's say, been living in housing estates and stuff like that they would have had a good collective around them whereas I suppose I had to make my own entertainment and be, uh, be pretty creative in building things, making things, but it was always a good house then for people to come to because, you know, we could kind of get away with doing things that she wouldn't get get away with doing elsewhere.
0: Yeah, the, the creative part I like the most creative story I've ever heard is someone um, they were born in 1960 and they cut the roof off a beetle and use it to to sail down a
1: river. Oh really? <laughs> yeah, That's gas. But I remember like you know when I was like I don't know or 11 years old my brother would have had one of these uh, kind of uh, uh, beetle racing racing buggies and that so when he was away in college in the week he had taught me how to drive in and that and uh, so friends used to come down to the house so instead of like your conventional climbing a tree we'd throw a rope up over a branch tie one end of it onto the buggy put a foot loop in the other drive forward in the buggy and then it would just lift the hoist the person up into the tree <laughs> so, it was... <laughs> Amazing. so it was that kind of
0: stuff you, you, you certainly lived a good childhood then Did that have any influence on your degree in electronic engineering?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So, well, actually for me, uh, I suppose the path to kind of going into electronic engineering was I had originally planned on uh, studying, I hoped to study aeronautical engineering and then my second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth choices, I'd say, were actually mechanical engineering and and that because I really liked the mechanical side of things. And I was just, I, I think I was reasonably good with logic and reasoning and, you know, that kind of stands uh, to reason there. And uh, then uh, in my leave-in search, I, like, I, you know, I, I was I was good at school, but I was kind of blue hot and cold when it came to exams. And um, my leave-in search was certainly a, an instance of cold. Uh, so I missed out, I, uh, like, and I would have been, you know, uh, reasonably good in terms of, like, uh, with with maths in school. But the one thing else that I was, I was really bad with rote learning. So, like, the theorems and that, I had to understand them to be able to, I had to understand everything to be able to apply it, you know, so yeah. I couldn't really just rote learn so um then i i actually i missed out on the honor in maths and the leave insert which i really shouldn't have right but it was just on, on a kind of an on the day thing and my point and my points weren't as high as expected so i ended up getting like the seventh choice in my ceo and it seemed that seemed horrendous at the time right it's like it just seemed like oh god will i go back will i repeat the leave insert what will i do and i actually got into a course with just electronic systems and um so my plan was i remember i got in touch with ul and uh, so i was in the university of limerick and they had told me look if you did if you do really well in first year you can transfer into a different course and you might have to go back into the first year of that course um but in studying electronic systems I realized you know, it's actually it wasn't the mechanical side or the aeronautical side that I wanted I loved electronics electronics were were, were incredible You're like your ability to uh you know to to take something from you know an idea of something that you'd like to have something that you'd like to to make you know something that's going to actually do something for you and then to be able to actually design that these electronic to get the electronic components together to be able to design it and actually have it physically in front of you and doing something was was amazing so then I decided it actually wasn't aeronautical that I wanted to go into I wanted to go into electronic engineering so the enge, instead of electronic systems into electronic engineering and thankfully when I in first year like I did like you know college that side of things it just it just it just resonated with me, so like I was able to do very well in first year and then able to transfer into second year of electronic engineering, and uh, so that kind of brought me onto the path then that, that, that I ultimately followed and uh, really absolutely uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. And as well, I suppose it's funny because having coming from having you know the maths of them in the problem in my even Cert, and engineering maths being thought of as one of the most difficult branches of. Of 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 maths, um, that it it actually I found it easy once I got to university because you were look you everything that you were studying you were looking at how it's applied, so you, you know it was all about the rational reasoning of it and everything like that so it all just made sense so it became one of my you know one of my strongest uh, subjects throughout college having been my Achilles heel previously you know.
0: Cool, cool. I, I, I do have some specific questions around your time at UL, but before we move on from, let's say, young Paddy growing up and on a slow, curious to know, if you, if you take yourself back to, you could pick an age, 8, 10, 12, what was the dream job for Paddy back then?
1: Uh it kind of, I think a typical little boy's dream of uh, wanting to be a pilot. So I, I really wanted to be a pilot and um, uh, I just, I thought that, that would be an incredibly interesting career and, you know, the ability to travel and uh, and all of that. Um, but I suppose then as as, uh, as as time went on and you kind of start to look at, well, what would a day in the life of that look like and more so what would a year and a career in the life of that look like? Um, it kind of wouldn't really appeal to more the kind of, I suppose, the engineering creative side of me. So uh I uh, fairly figured out that that wasn't for me and uh, so then I guess uh, for me then afterwards like when I would have been looking at at my career going forward security was going to be very important to me um, because I'm I'm one of six kids in my family and um, I um, uh, so like it would have been you know, and, and, my, and my parents would have come from the era where my mother had to leave her job when she got married. So it was effectively she worked in the, in the public sector, had to leave her job and that. So I think things, you know, things would have been reasonably tight. It was never made apparent to me that things were tight growing up. But in retrospect, when I look back, things were absolutely very tight. But my, my parents, uh, one thing that was incredible is that we all knew that we had, that, the, that our path was to go to college, which I think I just thought was was, was really uh, you know incredible standard. for my from my yeah yeah it, it yeah. felt standard but when i look back um the challenge of that must have been for my parents to actually make that a reality um and thank you know thank god for county council grants to actually be able to get into college so that i was able to go, kind of go on and do what, what i do now i wouldn't be able to do anything that i do now had i not kind of followed that path and um been able to uh, kind of get those opportunities um but for me then i think it, you know it's, it's always been very readily apparent to me that if you do the same as everyone else you'll get the same as everyone else so you need to work harder
0: For sure. Sounds like you've got a good set of parents. Focusing on your time at UL for a second, uh, in a previous interview I've listened to, you spent some time, I don't know how long, uh, working at Intel as part of your UL degree. That combined with working at companies like Crystal Energy and Resourcecraft, you're now the founding director of your own company. I'm curious to know what um, lessons uh, did working with others teach
1: you? um so i guess um in working intel in intel i was on co-op while i, while I was in college and uh i suppose some skills i got there was that that helped me to actually overcome a real nervousness around presenting that was that was huge um but it, one thing that really taught me was that uh I, it did not appeal to me being a very small cog in a very big machine, um, in, in something in in Intel, like, that was a real lesson there, and particularly when I would have seen a lot of engineers in Intel, and they would have been talking, and they would have talked about everything in terms of like the different types of products that were come through different steps uh, of the process, and they, they all had like code names for different different types of product, etc. And uh, I suppose, suppose these guys really thought that they were, you know, they would have been speaking very um, fluently with these code words, et cetera. But when you asked them what they actually meant or what was the underlying technology behind them, did that mean was it a different type of processor? Was it a different cache in the processor? Or what was it? They didn't know. So they were very like they were very good at a very with a very small subset of mm. what they were doing. They were excellent but they didn't really get much of a view as to how that fitted into a bigger picture and uh, I just thought that that was very unsatisfying like it would be very unsatisfying for me um uh, certainly and um so that i suppose would have kind of been like that, that not quite for me and I would, I'd never thrive in that environment I would be very much a, if i if I was there and I was working on that type of stuff I would be a nine to fiver you know and I would be trying to find other ways to fill it you know a, f- a fulfillment and um then i suppose as well uh when i was in fourth year in college actually myself and a friend we uh, uh we, we we imported some cars in japan so we started kind of importing some cars in japan and uh, and that and uh that kind of uh, got us some extra money in in in, in fo- uh in fourth year in college and i think that was actually a really good lesson for me because um where that lesson was was that you know look i was what 20, 20 years old so i was, uh, just turned 17 starting college so I was 20 years old in fortune and um, uh, I remember like the idea of importing a car from Japan just seemed like oh look that's ridiculous that's for somebody else to do somebody who has a, a you know a company that imports cars is that but what it was was it was a really good realization that well hang on so it doesn't matter who whoever this someone else is if they can do it then it's possible to do it so what would stand in our way of actually doing this, right? So me, me and my friend, we set up like a, an account with a with a company in Japan that we could get to go to auction for us and get, do shipping for us and all that. We set up with Irish Customs and we set up a Japanese bank account and stuff like that. And we just said... Let's give it a go. Let's just throw in a few quid each and just see what happens. See if something comes to Dublin Port, or do you get like I don't know, you get a a box of lead arrives or something I don't know. And uh, look, and, and and it worked, and and that, and it was cool. And we brought in some other cars, brought in some nice cars, and that. Um, but it was uh, I suppose at that point in time it was kind of like on the verge of the downturn. Um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so uh, when we kicked it off like there was plenty of guys uh, young guys out there doing um, apprenticeships and stuff like that had plenty of money to their names wanted to buy Japanese sports cars so you could you know you'd have them sold before they'd even land in Ireland um, but then um, that you know that the, these guys didn't have jobs never mind money anymore to be spending on Japanese sports cars so that wasn't going to be a, a, a long term plan but it was never going to be a long term plan it was just a kind of a let's give it a go and just see but a really good lesson with that was um that, uh, well, if somebody can do it, there's no reason why you can't do it. And um, then when I was, uh, then, then I started into my PhD after um, after after electronic engineering and uh, with, uh, so my final year project supervisor in UL, he asked me, he said, well, would you be interested in doing a PhD? We've got some funding coming up in this topic called demand response, which is ultimately what my career has turned into as demand response. And I I still remember the first time when I had to like, I had to go in for an interview for the scholarship. So I, um, I remember like, you know, Wikipedia was my friend, all of these, you know, I was there online going, what on earth is this thing that I need to talk to and, and actually finding out about it on this is actually really cool. And uh, so I started the PhD and during that, I uh, got to know uh, Resourcecraft. resource craft. They're a limerick based power metering company. And like a, a really fantastic company that I really admire because of their, their, their en- engineering centric approach to problem solving. So they, they, uh, they, they, uh, it's uh, uh, Liam Relihan and Frank Casey uh, run uh, run Resource Craft, And I suppose, particularly with Liam, just seeing his approach that he, he um, when he was looking at, uh, let's say, challenges for power metering uh, and being able to, let's say, validate the energy usage on, on, on large sites, etc. Um, uh, Liam's mind pretty quickly moved past the question of the problem and moved on to the solution, like guess in figuring out what the solution could be. And I suppose I would have learned uh, a lot from Liam in terms of his, his his practical approach to problem solving. And that was kind of actually just during my PhDs, just to get some time, a little bit of real world time, actually seeing how some of this ha- operates. And, and then uh, while I was studying, um, um, I started reading uh, this uh, a horrendous document called uh, uh, the Trading and Settlement Code. So the Trading and Settlement Code is like the Bible, it's the rule set of how the electricity market, how the... Financial side of the electricity market works in Ireland, right? So it's um, it sets out all the rules how we have to do everything, and um, it's uh, you know it's hundreds of pages. It's very quite complex stuff, yeah. but it's uh, uh, but I've I found it really interesting to read it. And one of the things that I started to kind of realise is that there isn't a major barrier here to stop anybody setting up an electricity supply company. And um, so an electricity supply company, I would have almost thought that to be a big utility your first step is starting step is you already have to be a big utility as if like, it's a kind of a, a closed shop, right. And to be a yeah. big company, you have to start as a big company. And looking at this, it became kind of uh, apparent that, well, no, uh, there's, uh, there isn't any major barrier to enter, entry here. Um, uh, It's possible to get involved and to be an electricity supply company because the what people, most people don't know is that the electricity market is actually there's a wholesale market. that's like, um, almost like a cash and carry for electricity so all power stations on the power system sell into the electricity market and then all supply companies buy out of that so even if you have like um electric ireland having both generation and a supply company this, the generation still sells into that pool and the supply company buys out the same as all the other suppliers, right? And you don't need to own the generation. You don't have to own it. You can actually just be a buyer out of that pool and buy it for the same price as everyone else buys out of that pool, right? It's kind of a, the price is, is, is set every half hour depending on what generation is needed. Um, so it's like, okay, so you can just go in as a supply company and set up an electricity supply company, buy from the wholesale market like anyone else and then sell on to electricity customers. And at the same time, I was kind of going through that thought process, a, a gentleman called uh, uh, Joe Hodgins, who used to actually be in, in, in senior management with ESB in the Money Point Power Plant and had since gone into he has a company called Hodgins Architectural Facades to do like big uh, curtain glazing on big commercial and industrial buildings. Um, he was looking at kind of getting back into the electricity market. He'd been away from ESB for a while. And he approached our research group about something in, I can't remember, about something in in, in UL. And I remember when I was talking to him, I was saying, look, I'm kind of on the same parallel thought process as you here in terms of set up an electricity supply company. So I was involved then with Joe during the startup of uh, of Crystal Energy. And uh, Crystal Energy would have taken on then some um uh, uh some large um industrial electricity customers and that and uh, it it offered what's called a, a pass-through electricity tariff where the customers would actually get the half hourly price in the wholesale market plus a small margin for the for the, for the, for the service and um that then i suppose that was a, a huge lesson in like if we go back to the lesson on with the importing a car from japan and you go god if somebody can do it then why can't i do it well yeah. setting up an electricity supply company was that lesson on steroids where you're going you know something that i would have thought it was a major barrier to entry you had to be somebody else you had to have i don't know either be born with a silver spoon or in your mouth or you needed uh you know to have be yeah um, at an, you know, uh, you have to be a, a large company to engage in a certain in a certain um, activity to start with. Um, this was a real lesson, and no, you don't. If you can set up an electricity supply company that's selling, you know, tens of thousands of euros worth of power a month, um, and you can start to that from scratch, then um, then you know what really is unsurmountable for somebody to actually want to to do, uh, you know. Um, and uh, so then w- there's there's kind of very little limited opportunity for. Um, uh, innovation on the electricity supply side of the market, really, in my in my mind. Um, so what I did then was instead of kind of continuing with Crystal Energy, um, we used Crystal Energy then to actually. So instead of me looking to like you know take a stake in it or otherwise, uh, yeah. I kind of come out away from that and instead said, look, how about you fund um, time for me to do a postdoc, postdoctoral research fellowship in UL? Um, so basically. Crystal Energy, if they put in X amount of money, the Science Foundation of, I think it was the Science Foundation of Ireland, would would back it with an extra two thirds. And that then gave me bread and butter money while I wanted to set up what was electricity exchange and is now Viotis. Um, so uh, that, that's what we did there. And that kind of moved me then in towards uh, setting up electricity exchange with uh, with Duncan O'Toole.
0: If, if I've understood this correctly, just for pretend I'm an alien as a first time on planet Earth, w- I imagine this big black box in the centre of Ireland that there's demand and then there's supply and people can uh, generate energy for this big black box and then the providers can go sell that to the general public.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, basics of it. That's that's the basics of it there, and it's like. so you might be familiar with the with, with, with air grid right people are familiar yeah. with the name but nobody knows what they do right mm-hmm. um, so i would uh i, I would equate air grid as being um if the if power stations and wind farms and the likes of us and the power system are like the the players in an orchestra airgrid is the conductor of the orchestra and airgrid is listening to what you and the audience wants to hear so basically gotcha. whatever whatever power is needed at any point in time airgrid conducts what generation is needed to, to actually be online and they do that in both the planet day ahead and they also do it in real time and then uh, after that an electricity supply company actually the function of an electricity supply company might surprise you um, is that all of is really they are administrators, so what they do is they're the collectors of money, so the flow of money in the electricity market is that electricity customers pay in, uh, that money then has to be dispersed between ESP um, uh, networks, uh, sorry, well, first of all, the power stations for actually generating the power, um, They air grid is what's called the transmission system operator, so they get the power down through the arteries of the power system, so you have to pay them, ESP networks, then are like the capillaries, the distribution network that gets it to your house. So what your electricity supply company actually really does is take the money that you pay them and then pay each of those parties on your behalf and keep a, and keep a fee for it. That's what an electricity supply company is.
0: Okay. And ESB themselves aren't one of those electricity supply companies. they
1: programs. are they so are, they get uh, a bigger piece of the pie then. So so they basically they they fill multiple functions. They own an electricity supply company with Electric Ireland, then they also own um a generation and the generation side of the market, and they also own um infrastructure that gets the power to you um as well. So they just have um they just have effectively businesses that operate a in bigger, multiple areas. In yeah, multiple areas, gotcha. yeah.
0: I'd regret it if I didn't ask going back to the Japanese cars do you have a favourite car at the moment?
1: Uh, at the moment yeah absolutely so I uh, and I, I'm lucky I have it um, a, a, a Tesla uh, SP100D uh, nice. um, so I was I uh, uh, look, it was a massive thing for me to get. I think the the fanciest thing I owned before I bought the Tesla was a Ted Baker water bottle that my wife got me. You know, I'm not I'm not a kind of a I'm not a real kind of like you know uh, uh, spender it's a spender of on, on fancy things. And then, um, but like, look at can imagine that that car just appealed to everything in me. Um, really, yeah, yeah. like you know, and the autopilot, it's the fastest accelerating car and all that. And I kind of don't know where I go from there. Which is like you know, but I have no reason no reason to change. But I love it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, for anyone who's connected with you on any of your social sites, they'll notice, it won't take them long to notice, that you are a scuba diving instructor. So I'm interested to know, what's one thing that you're into that not a lot of people know about?
1: Um, okay, so the uh, scuba diving instructor, one thing that I'm into, um, so recently I've started to try to learn guitar, actually so nice. that, is that the guitar that, behind you that's the guitar behind and it's actually down to the fact that with scuba diving there isn't it takes like a full day to go diving and i'm involved in yeah. with a, search and, a search and recovery dive unit i live in killaloo just outside limerick and uh so i'm involved with a search and recovery dive unit here and that and um but like to go diving just takes i don't have a whole lot of time um but i just wanted something like to just take my mind off of work for i don't know 20 minutes here and there um so yeah. my wife at christmas bought me a guitar to start uh, learning uh, because I'm quite void of talent. Otherwise, and uh, I, I, there's nothing else that I can really do that's a good demonstrable skill, you know?
0: Nice. Very cool. Um, again, Googling your name, you'll see EY Irish Entrepreneur of the Year Finalist 2008, Limerick's Best Young Entrepreneur 2014, Ireland's Top 30 Under 30, uh, Limerick's Top 40 Under 40. A, a, a ton of awards. One of your Instagram pictures is just uh, an award uh, unit probably bigger than some Premier League clubs have. For anyone considering putting themselves forward for the likes of EY Irish Entrepreneur of the Year, what are some of the benefits that you've seen, and what words of encouragement would you have for those that are on the fence?
1: So this is it. it, it isn't for you. It's for your team. Like so, really and truly, like our team, and anyone's team who's kind of at our stage of business, they just work relentlessly on trying uh, with the total interests of the company at, at heart, you know, yeah. um, and um, these are the people that you have to have involved in during kind of startup and initial growth phases of a company. And the, what these awards do is they provide a really good, you know, validation to the team as to the effort that that the effort that they have put in is, is, is recognized. And also that it, it, it stands up um, when, when compared with, uh, you know some incredible companies that we have been uh, um, that we have competed against in the for these awards. Um, that it really does validate that what they're working on is has been recognized and is actually been seen to be making a difference um, so really i think that for these for these awards first and foremost it's for the team for that the networking opportunities with these as well is fantastic and it, it is certainly good for the marketing of the company but um, as well and not even just for, for prospective clients but also for for our existing clients and you know the messages of congratulations that we get from our existing clients are fantastic that they you know if they really do enjoy seeing our name in, in, in the paper as you know, who they're working working with because again look at the stage of we are in business we have personal relationships with these people um, so they feel invested they feel, our clients feel like they've been part of our growth story as well uh, so when they start seeing the recognition there I think they, they, they also feel uh, you know acclaimed to success
0: You pointed out something very interesting there, I had a friend that came here recently and he didn't want to put himself forward for awards because he thought it was kind of virtual signalling and I said to him you one reason why you should put yourself forward and you picked up on it there was to showcase to your current clients that they're currently working with the best. Yeah. Very, very solid point. The company you own at the moment, Viotis, an article came out in December 2020 to announce that are hiring 16 new jobs and that you have opened or are planning to open your first international office in Melbourne. What are the future plans for Viotis?
1: Yeah. Um, so okay. So I can start off with the plans, and we can go through some of the mechanics of, of what, what we're doing with that. Um, absolutely. So at the moment, um, we've set we've set up a very strong company here in terms of capability. So the cap- the different capabilities we have in the company allow us to achieve a huge amount of um, a, a, a huge amount of innovation and delivery of services and um, uh, also to be to maintain a lot of flexibility so we, we call ourselves a full stack company so we we have a 24-hour operation center we have sales we have field operations who install equipment on site and we provide services but we also have hardware engineers that can start with the building of a printed circuit board, you know, and the design of a printed circuit board. So if we have an idea and we find that there's no technology to help us achieve it, we can start at brass tacks and go, well, let's develop the technology from ground up. Okay. So that with that then I suppose it means that it gives us great capability when we look at international landscape for it's the, the electricity market is evolving incredibly quickly. It's it, it, to be able to, to be able to bring more renewables onto the power system. Power systems and electricity markets are having to change very significantly and this creates good opportunity, but it's can be quite hard to foretell exactly what the next changes are going to be now we've had a good track record in that but in order to be able to capture them you need to be very nimble so and we, we we're well placed for that so in terms of uh, our, our our upcoming growth uh, we're planning on rolling out to so we have we have our operation in australia now we've got an a, you know an Recruit an excellent team there with fantastic leadership and uh, a fantastic team on the ground there who are starting to grow the business there. Uh, we set up a research and development office in, in Krakow and in Poland as well, uh, just in the last few months. Yep. And uh, we're planning then to roll out to a further eight markets over the coming uh, four yep. and a half to five years. Um, so uh, it's now about transitioning the business from being an operational business that is. Uh, you know, um, doing the underground work um, to uh, building the business that's actually uh, building the infrastructure within the business that's able to spawn these new businesses, spawn and manage these new businesses remotely. Um, so that is the real key to the real, like we've got, we're I would say we're a late adolescent. Uh, as uh, you know, as as a business, that's where I kind of see us as a stage. We're kind of gone from the childhood stage where um, ad hoc is fantastic. Ad hoc is what you need as a startup. It gets things done. It's you know too much process as a startup would just would kill you. But then yeah, once there's there's a kind of a point of inflection after which um, process and structure are just the key to growth. You know, and um, so. Uh, uh, in terms of, like, my, the, the the running of of, of is myself and 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 my business partner Duncan, course uh, a fellow co-founder, and uh, you know we're both very very aligned in our views as to what's what's needed to uh, to to grow the business. So we spent the last year then, um, uh, uh, you know, put together a good senior management team in the business. They same say, kind of pre-COVID, we had about. 27 on the team we now are up over 60 and we have a further you know 60 jobs coming online and a further about a further 100 120 going to come on abroad and um, uh, I suppose we spent the last year looking at um, at working on making sure that we're building the internal fabric in the business that can actually achieve that uh, rather than Setting out, setting out to start setting, um, you know, um, setting up a, a load of international operations, and then going, how on earth do we actually sustain this? How do we, you know, even even things that, how do you manage the internal communication within the business and all your processes and flows and that? Uh, it's too late to start it then, so the work has been taken on that over the last year.
0: Yeah, interesting. You say internal communication. I was chatting to a guy uh, who has a company, and he's achieved hyper growth in the last couple of years. I think there's five hundred employees at it now. There were 60, maybe three, four years ago. And he said, uh, he's done this multiple times. The line of communication breaks down at the 150th hour. Anything beyond that, it completely breaks. Um, So you need to uh, plan ahead and consider that that will happen. Um, Very, very impressive. And it makes me smile to see Irish businesses are growing. You mentioned Melbourne. Melbourne. Very familiar with Australia. I lived there for a year, 2015, 2016. You also mentioned Krakow. i assuming you've traveled before. Pretend COVID doesn't exist or fast forward when it's disappeared and you can travel again. What's the first city or country you're going to go to? Uh,
1: for business? It doesn't have to be business or pleasure. <laughs> no, uh, so I think, yeah, no, I think straight get straight down to the team in Melbourne. So we've fully, yeah. remotely put together a team there and uh, we want to get down. I want to get some of the team here down to them. I'd like to get them to visit us as well um, because, uh, you know, they are... Uh, a fully you know a fully integrated part of our team um, but we're only see, we're only getting to talk to them like this and um, I think to get down there and also for um uh, they've been remarkable at as assimilating our culture um but I think that that would be bolstered as well by us getting to spend a little bit more time with them and we also need to make sure that we get that will help us to refine our process of instilling culture the culture of the company in, in remote operations as well. Uh, we need to get um, uh, to, to, to certainly polish that as capability. Um, so down down to Melbourne, unfortunately, by the looks of things, it'll be uh, there winter <laughs> when that arises. Yeah, uh, <laughs>
0: um, That's still but, a cool place to go to. I'm actually hoping to get my best friends getting married next year. I'm hoping to get back out there as well myself. Um, I've really enjoyed the conversation with you today, Paddy. The final question is, do you have a current book that you're reading or a podcast that you're listening to?
1: Um not as such. So I definitely kind of vary my appetite for what I'm for, for, for what I'm listening to. So like I work atrocious hours, rain, embarrassing hours. Yeah. Like so I work typically just maybe four in the morning so my typical kind of cut off during the week. And um, I just tend to let, I, I actually tend to listen to a lot of tutorials because, um, oh. uh, so what I listen to is uh, there's a lot of tech innovation going on in the company, as well as being CEO and CTO of the company. And it, it's long past the stage where I could fully keep abreast and on top of absolutely everything and an all day. Yeah. the intricacies of the innovation that's going on in the company but I still need to be able to have an educated conversation with all the team and be able to kind of plan in terms of a technical strategy around like you can't plan your technical strategy unless you know the envelope of capability of what's yeah. could potentially be achieved Um, So I think a lot of the time when they hear trying new uh, software development languages or there's perhaps even a new new, uh, silicon semiconductor they were looking at using or something like that, uh, what I tend to do is put on in the background uh, tutorials on YouTube and just listen to them. Just keep them in the background uh, while I'm working away. So I'm just trying to learn a little bit uh, all the time about, um, uh, uh, about perhaps new systems that either are we know to we have interest to us that we're using or things that we maybe are featuring on our radar that might be of interest to us and we could do it just learning a little bit more as to how it might fit into our kind of tech, tech ecosystem.
0: Paddy, I wish you continued success in the future and I hope that you enjoy your trip down to Australia.
1: That's great, Ryan. Thank you very much.